On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Jesse Cohenhoven about moral agency, especially as it relates to children. So we cover all sorts of topics like what is moral theory and moral agency? Why do we have a tendency to exaggerate the agency of children or disabled persons, etc.? Why have studies in the past been systematically biased when it comes to studying children? Should we be cynical about these studies like this? Why has the approach to putting the age of reason, or whatever that means, at 12 or otherwise, come under empirical critique? Why is childhood theologically important? Are children responsible? Are they capable of virtue or vice? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I we are a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about that, uh, I always try to remind our listeners, whether they're new or old, what we mean by that. It's not just being very vigorous in our argumentation. It's not just putting down a syllogism or, or whatever you imagine as like really sophisticated, high-level academic thinking. We also mean a particular sort of posture towards our thinking. And so in an effort to sort of describe that, we've, we've talked about hopefully cultivating an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. So that includes the sort of high-level critical thinking that we think everybody should be having, but it also includes virtuous dispositions of being interested in other people, why they think the way they think, and seeking to understand them and why it is that they're saying what they say. We think that uh, James 3 provides a lot of wisdom when it comes to what it looks like to be a virtuous thinker, being open to reason, being gentle, uh, being those sort of things. But on the flip side, we should still be critical and we should hold what we think of as a a sort of confession of faith regarding the the centrality of of the Orthodox Christian faith as well as uh, broader to the larger Protestant tradition. Hold that cheerfully as it helps to guide and help helps us to ask uh, appropriate questions towards various topics. Now, today I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Jesse Cohenhoven. We are going to be talking primarily about children and agency, moral agency in general. I think this is going to be a lot of fun because I don't know of any podcasts or any resources that are in this sort of format that's accessible and available. And I think it's super relevant. People ask these questions all the time and think about them. I think sometimes... People, when they're new parents, they think about them a lot, and then their kids get old and they forget about the questions. And so that's part of the reason that that happens is it's a stage of your life. It's not always there with you that you have little gremlins running around your house like I do, where I I think about children and moral agency probably just naturally, um, but I'm not thinking about it in a a manner like a, I don't know, an ordered manner. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Jesse, before we get started talking about the topic in particular, I'd love to know a little bit about you. Where are you at? And what was it that really sparked your interest in this particular topic? Well, thanks, Jordan. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. And um, it's exciting for me to be able to talk about this research that I um, have been doing for the past few years. Um, So, yeah, just a little bit about myself. I um, I, uh, was a psychology major in undergrad, and I've always been interested in questions about human nature, sort of like what makes people tick. What does the good life look like? Um, but my, my psych profs told me that um, my questions were too philosophical. 
and uh, that they couldn't test them empirically. And that maybe I should talk to some people in the religion or the philosophy department. So I, I did and kind of like realized, oh, oh, this is, this is what I should do. Um, but I've never lost an interest in the, the psychological issues either. So I did my doctoral work at Yale. Um, and then for about 20 years now, I've been a professor at Villanova University. Um, but I've always held on to those questions about agency. Um, and I've taken various directions to try to get at those. Um, so my first book was about original sin. And um, the motivation there was really to ask some questions about what it means to be free and um, what it means to, to, to have genuine agency. Um, it seems to me that that doctrine gets at really interesting questions about how we don't fully control who we are and um, don't even always know what we're up to. Um, and raises then interesting questions about what well, can you blame people if, if they have attitudes that they don't control. Um, and some people think of it as a negative doctrine, but I, I just think it's in, in really insightful. Um, and so I did work on Augustine with that too. And one thing that Augustine famously says right at the beginning of the Confessions, actually, um, is that children, um, babies, when they're, when they're sucking at their mother's breasts, they're, they're greedy. Um, and a lot of my students over the years have read this passage, friends too, and they're just not happy about it. Like Augustine seems like he's being so mean spirited and cute little babies and you know, what, like why be harsh? Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Uh, I'm not sure that like a, a newborn should be blamed for vice, which actually I'm not sure if Augustine was actually doing that. But anyway, that passage was maybe the first thing that raised for me this question about, well, what is the moral status of children? Um, and then 10 years ago, I, I finally was able to become a parent. And then, as you say, you just naturally ask these questions because you, you tell your kid, well, do this or don't do that. Um, and you end up blaming them for things or you give them praise. Sometimes you punish them. Sometimes you reward them. And then you're like, well, should I be reacting this way? I mean, they don't know what they're doing. Um, and so I, with my friends and my wife, have just had super fascinating conversations and it turns out there's been a revolution in psychological research on children's agency and cognition over the past couple of decades. And so I kind of wanted to put all of that together um, to write some stuff on this topic. It's been a fun project. Awesome. So as we think about children and agency, it's probably best to start at the ground level of just thinking about moral agency in general, uh, potentially how the, the sort of terminology of free will might interact with that? Does that mean having a choice? I know you have some reservations about that way of thinking. So explore that as you see fit. Though, before you do that, maybe give me a like two, two sentence explanation of moral theory in general and how that fits with Christian ethics. Just because I have a, I, I know a lot of our listeners, they're, they're pastors or they've been trained in seminaries. And typically when it comes to these sort of questions, it's, it's under the heading of like ethics so it, it, would you say moral theory and then the stuff on moral agency is separate from ethics or is that like some somehow related to it? Great questions. Thank you. I, I think that um, moral theory is, in, is part of ethics. But I also think that as a Christian theologian, it's important not to think of ethics as a, um, an independent discipline. I actually think that Christian doctrines of grace and salvation uh, and atonement and forgiveness relativize 
how we think or, or should shape in deep ways how we think about ethics. I mean, this is the, the great topic of the Reformation, right? Um, merit. And like, do we have any? And what would it mean to say that we do? And so on. Um, and so if your standard kind of like Kant-influenced concept of ethics is uh, you make a choice autonomously and then you get credit for that because it was up to you. Um, well, Christian doctrines of grace, etc., they complexify all of that a lot, I think. Um, so for me, it's really important that ethics and the moral theory and the, and the thoughts about agency that come out of that uh, have to be deeply theological and shaped by our understanding of soteriology, especially. Um, so does that, yeah, does that take yeah, care of the first part of your question? So then when I think more about like moral agency in particular and its relationship to the concepts of free will and, and choice and things, what, what, how are we thinking about those? Yeah. Um, so my sense, and one of the reasons why I went back to Augustine um, to kind of educate myself I wanted to learn from the tradition. Um, my sense is that we have all kind of inherited a culture of thinking about free will that is uh, what philosophers call libertarian. And super short version of that is libertarians think that in order to have free will um, or in order to deserve moral credit for something, you have to be the ultimate source. Of that, of that fact about yourself. So in some sense, you have to be the deciding factor. Um, and that's what it means to be free. Um, and I think in our culture, this is why choice is such a big mantra. Um, I mean, I think there are good reasons to care about having choices, like a political system that allowed no choices would be probably totalitarian, and that's not so good. Um, but theologically and philosophically, I think the Christian tradition thinks of freedom as something more than choice. Maybe sometimes having a choice is a good or important thing. But ultimately, in the Christian view, um, the kind of freedom that Jesus has um, as the, the God-man, uh, I think theologically, it's just super interesting. Like the human nature of Jesus doesn't have a choice. It's um, selected, right? He's, he's elect. Um, and so... He is who God has given him to be. Um, and indeed, it seems that that's the case for, for all of us as created beings. And the freedom then that one has is to flourish as the, as the being that God has made one to be. Um, so this, I think, is an, a normed conception uh, of freedom, a, a conception of goodness, that you're not truly free unless you're good, unless you're able to love the way God wants you to love. Um, and then I think that means then that choice is relativized. Um, it's, it's not the sine qua non of freedom. Um, and indeed, I think it's possible to be free without having choices in circumstances where you have, to keep it simple, the ability to do what you want, where you can act for your own reasons. Um, and that, I think, is the wisdom. That's a kind of wisdom from the, from the Christian tradition that I think to some degree, we've been in danger of losing. Yeah. So that's, that's what got me interested in freedom. Yeah, I, my intuitions tend to track with that to where I don't need to have sort of alternative possibilities 
the the classic Frankfurt cases have always been quite persuasive to me. But that's you know okay. those are yeah. apart from even yeah. the theological considerations of what it means to be free. So I, I, now, when it comes to children and the concept of agency, what does it mean? for a child to have agency? And are, would we change our definition of agency when it comes to someone like a child or someone uh, that we would think has traditionally, when we just say someone is an agent, maybe a disabled person, we feel like they have less agency or someone, uh, I, I don't know, there's a lot, a lot of different scenarios where we would probably just naturally yeah. intuitively think they have either less agency or no agency. So when we think about it, how should we sort of be explaining it and understanding that? Yeah. Um, I think that um, one way to one way to think about the 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 theory of free will and agency that I was just talking about is that it comes in in um, levels of demandingness. So I think the libertarian notion that most of us kind of um, take for granted culturally is a is a highly demanding concept of free will. Um, what uh, uh, some philosophers have called agency par excellence. Um, so maybe, I mean, I'm not saying actually that I agree with this, but maybe you could say to be the ultimate source of your own um, identity, because you made a choice that was controlled by nothing else, maybe that's the most powerful kind of agency. Um, as I say, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with that, but um, but that's a very demanding concept. But it seems to me that there are lots of kinds of agency that matter to us a great deal that fall short of that, that aren't as autonomous or um, self-creating, but they still matter. Um, and I mean, one, one way to think about this is, uh, since AI is all the, all the rage now, think about the agency of chat GPT when it writes a, a horrible C um, C minus essay for one of my students. Um, yeah, I don't really give chat GPT any credit or blame for that. It's just a machine and it's not, it doesn't know what it's doing. Uh, it doesn't have a reason for what it's doing. It's just deterministic, like reductive execution, you know? Um, but there's a, there's a difference between that and what children do for sure, right? Um, even if they can't tell us why they, they want certain things or care about certain things, like the, the kind of just natural security they feel if their parent is close by, you know, when they're really young, um, there's like, there's a logic to that, right? And when they run to be closer or cry, if, if you go away, whatever, there's like a, a sensibility there. There's an insight that motivates their behavior even if they can't tell you what it is. Um, so I think there are all these different like levels of agency. And one mistake we've made is having an overly simplistic all or nothing kind of dichotomy where if you don't have agency par excellence, then maybe you know, you've got nothing. And as you say, I, th I think that's actually led us to ignore the significance of uh, a lot of different sorts of agency, including the agency of the disabled, um, and maybe of non-human animals, uh, that's a hot topic these days as well. Um, and definitely of younger children, it seems to me. So if I, if I recall right, 
there's been quite a few studies on at least agency of children in the past. And I think you, you correct me if I'm wrong. You would say that a lot of these studies in the past have been sort of systematically biased in some way. Should yeah. we be cynical about most of the studies that have been done on children in the past? Why or why not? Do they have resources that are useful in some sense that provide us some true aspects of how, what it means to, to have agency as a child? Yeah, I, I do think there are reasons for concern. Um, you know, all of the, as maybe you know, the, the social science has been going through a, a crisis over the past couple of decades. Um, often people call it the replication crisis, which is a way of talking about how it's hard to um, repeat certain classic studies. If you repeat them, you don't get the same results. Um, or, or you can't, um, you can't get the same quality of results. And so people are sort of wondering, how good is this research actually? Uh, was it just an accident that certain studies showed certain things? Um, but beyond that, I think there are reasons to have reservations about some of the older um, foundational research in developmental psychology. So big figures like um, Piaget or Kohlberg, stuff that you know you typically learn about in your intro psych classes. Um, turns out that their way of trying to figure out what children were capable of was oftentimes, I mean, it's not that they have nothing interesting to say that we can't learn anything from them, but a lot of their research was too demanding, uh, researchers now think. And so it kind of fell prey to this dichotomy I was just talking about where um, if you can't do all the really cool stuff that a... Um, supposedly normal full-grown adult can do then like you're just you're out uh and you don't have you don't have significant agency um and some of the stuff that they asked children to do was just hard um like famously kohlberg um was trying to figure out what moral stages of development children were at and at what ages and the way he tested this was by asking moral dilemma questions and one of his most famous ones uh, was a guy, I think his name is Heinz, and his wife has a debilitating illness, um, but he can't get medicine. The medicine he knows will help her. Uh, he's too poor. But he does know that if he steals, he can, he can get it. He, like, he can sneak into the pharmacy or whatever and get it. And so the question then is, like, uh, what should Heinz do and why? Well, that's the, like, I mean, a grown-up has trouble with that one, like, it seems like you kind of feel like you should say he should steal, but then stealing is wrong. And so like, is it a tragedy or like, what are you supposed to say about that? Right. And um, Kohlberg had a certain kind of Kantian line that he wanted people to take. That was for him, the highest stage of moral development following certain universalizable um, moral principles. Well, I mean, most grownups can't tell you about that unless they've had an awful lot of ethics right? Like who uses this language, universalizable moral principles, whatever. So not surprisingly, uh, younger kids, especially like really young children, you know, like they had nothing to say about this. <laughs> like, I feel bad for Heinz, you know? Uh, okay. So, to, but the, what does that show? Like, what has he proved there? You know, not too much, it turns out. Um, and so more recent research is just much more subtle, and nuanced. And um, so there's been a whole host of studies, for instance, involving not a lot of talking, because, um, you know, not surprisingly, three to eight year olds, then aren't always that good at conversation, which they find boring. 
as my 10 year old son has, has uh, made clear to me, too much talking is boring, but, but playing is great. And they're fully engaged with that. And so they've done all this great research with um, distribution of simple goods like cookies or stickers. Um, and you play a game where uh, maybe some puppets that are with you playing the game, they get some of the stickers, but other ones don't get as many. But then you, the kid, you get a lot maybe. Um, and then the researcher says like, what do you wanna do? And it turns out in really high percentages, the kids wanna distribute things fairly and they want things to be equal. And they feel bad if they watch a little play in which a puppet is mistreating another puppet and they try to help out the puppet that's been mistreated and they'll avoid playing with the puppet that's doing the mistreating. Well, also, I mean, that's all pretty interesting, right? Like that is a great example of how we can know stuff without being able to talk about it. And um, the ability to know more than we can say Pretty cool. Yeah. So has there been a sense in which some of the more empirical studies of late have pushed back against sort of this idea of there being an age of reason of sorts, where at some point, whatever the age is, 8, 10, 12, 14, where suddenly you reach sort of like this maturity level of where now you can reason prior to that, you couldn't. It seems like what you're describing yeah. here seems to push against that. So it would be more of like, well, they don't have the ability to verbalize it, but it's still latent there and operating in some respect. Yeah, this is some, um, I mean, the short answer is that they, people are still really interested in something like an age of reason because they want to have a line where they can say like, hey, children are now responsible agents and they have free will. Um, and so there've been arguments uh, among at least certain more philosophical figures in, in the field doing the research about like, what is the new age of responsibility. Um, and the consensus is definitely that it gets pushed back. So the older, the older line was, was a lot of times drawn around the age of 10 or 12. And now I think it's pretty widely agreed that it would more likely be six, but then some people think it's actually three. And um, so my view is there's something, I think you were implying this, there's something screwed up about thinking there's one age of reason that like, ta-da, you've got it now. Um, as there are all kinds of different lines that we cross. And this is partly why being a parent is sort of both fun and hard and, and frustrating because you're like, well, what am I supposed to expect of my child at this point? And am I being fair? And, and they change super fast. And so it's hard to know. Um, so I don't think it's wrong to have some kind of theory of um, broad stages. And this is one thing that some researchers have been, uh, some researchers have been trying to offer that I think is helpful. They've realized that individual development is so varied that you can't just say two-year-olds can all do X because they, they like, as you know, right, they can't. Um, and you don't want to make parents feel like, oh, my child is, um, a laggard and there's something wrong, you know, cause it's just not the case. Um, but what they've ended up doing is offering these kind of bands of development, like two year increments where, well, generally speaking in this period, children tend to develop these sorts of abilities. Okay. Yeah. It's I think theoretically it's really tricky to know then how to think about all that. And there's a lot of work to be done. Um, kind of like reprocessing 
this idea that there are probably multiple ages of reason. So it seems like when you're a parent that there's a little bit of an ease in being like, there's a, a range here, but there's also the legal question of like more greater matters of greater importance. Say some, somebody kills somebody. You have to have yeah. like a black and white. This is the line. Is there a sense That's, in which, yeah. or you, or there's a 14 year old steals something or, you know, I, I can imagine all a whole host of scenarios where a, a child does something bad that which should be morally responsible. It is has the empirical research at some point said adulthood, so to speak, should be also pushed back before eighteen, or is or is eighteen still sort of the agreed upon? That's the standard we should have. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting issue. Um, I I have not seen any psychologists who want to have anything to do with intervening in the, the legal discussions about agency. I mean, I do think at some point, as the research becomes more solid, it may have implications. But I would also say, I mean, people want to err on the side of don't ask too much, because the legal thing, it's not flexible, right? Um, and so you have cases like this. This um, Just a few months ago, there was a crazy story about, wasn't it a six-year-old kid or something and who brought a gun to school and, and, and shot their teacher. Yes, I vaguely remember something along those lines. And the parent ended up getting charged, um, for negligence, uh, for this, which seems like the right move. Um, cause certainly whatever agency, uh, six-year-olds have understanding the implications of, uh, a gun and what it can do. That's, yeah. that's pretty hard to comprehend. So, um, yeah, but I think most psychologists aren't as much interested in the legal implications of their work as the just the interpersonal aspects of it. And I do think it's important to maintain a clear difference there. I mean, one way to talk about this is, is to think about the difference between the interpersonal attitudes that we have with each other of, of blaming or praising and questions about punishment. Um, I think questions of punishment should be connected to these questions about agency and deserved blame, but they're also, they're separate. Um, because when and how you're gonna punish somebody depends on a whole host of other considerations, like what's affordable and what do you think might be effective? And which audiences are you trying to communicate with? And so the, all these questions about punishment are bigger than these, these interpersonal questions about blame it seems to me. And so there's, there's some kind of complicated gap there. Well, here, here's a, a real life concrete example. I just got a text message from my wife right in the middle of this interview saying that she came downstairs <laughs> from putting my, my youngest to sleep who is five months old and my middle son who's three years old stole the bag of chocolate Santas and ate every single one while she was upstairs and was covered in chocolate with a pile of wrappers. <laughs> what band of agency is he in when he's making this decision to go eat all the chocolate at Santa? That's really funny. I have a similar story about um, uh, my son has two younger cousins who live right near us. A few years back when they were four, um, they got into some paint oh, in their playroom. And yeah, exactly. It made a big mess. And the adults were in a different room. Um, and the one of the, the two cousins, they're twins, so the same age. And the girl twin comes into the room with us to say hi and maybe can I have a snack or something. 
and she's got like paint on her face and we all look at her and say hey um like where did that come from and she immediately said my brother opened the paints um <laughs> so we were like okay so clearly she knew like this was wrong and it's better to to get the blame on somebody else you know and um yeah my view is that starting around three or four we probably can um properly blame kids um for their implicit knowledge i mean in in, in my story the the girl mia she she could talk about blaming other people which is pretty interesting i think yeah but i i don't know what's your sense i mean when my son was three we had the sense that there were a number of occasions where he was quite clear that there was a line and crossed it quite deliberately, partly sometimes to see what we would do. Like, if I get away with this, that'll be awesome because then I can continue, you know, like how um, how weak are my parents? Yeah, I get the sense you know, that like a test. I very much get the sense my three-year-old's in this weird testing phase, uh, finding out where the boundary lines are and everything. Though my five-year-old, like you mentioned, where you, the your example where you can blame somebody else, even if you weren't theoretically taking apart, my five-year-old is very much in that stage. I feel like a couple of months ago, my middle son again decides to turn on the water faucet in the bathroom in his room upstairs, dumps all the water all over, and the, who knows how long this is ongoing. My wife comes in, and there's water everywhere, which ends up going and going through our ceiling on the and dripping all over. So I have to like replace the uh, drywall yeah. and everything. But my oldest just stands there the whole time and is like just having the greatest time. But when my wife, you know, confronts him, it says, oh, well, I didn't do it. Ezra did it. Uh, I told him not to, but I just stood here and like, you know, sort of like <laughs> took part in the right. act, though I wasn't actually the one, you know, taking all the water out. So it's very interesting to me. It, like you've mentioned these different, it does seem there is a real sense in which there's different stages of development in agency. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, there are a couple of really fascinating things here. Some philosophers have wanted to say, well, when we blame children of this age, three to five, three to six, whatever, we're not, it's not really moral blame of a responsible and accountable agent who has something like free will. It's just um, like a useful training device. So what you want is less of that behavior and they want to please you. So if you show disapproval, they're more likely to stop. So this is kind of like a consequentialist take on parental blame and punishment. I've asked a bunch of my, my parent friends over the years about this, and they all kind of recoil and say, no, that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> like, the kid clearly deserved it. Like, they knew it was wrong. Don't tell me they didn't. Um, and I think that this gets to really interesting questions about moral theory and what you think has to be possible for a child in order for them to count as morally blameworthy. And, uh, you know, this, this really famous um, psychologist, Michael Tomasello, has one of the more clear accounts of what to make of a lot of this research. His argument has been children are not moral agents until they're at least six, because it's not until that age that they can um, conceptualize moral rules as such. And for him, that this means a an obligation that stands over you as something that's expected of you from your larger group. 
So not just the individual opinion of like, my dad likes this or my mom doesn't like this or whatever, but rather a sense that this is how things are supposed to be. And then the sense that I knew that, but I did it anyway. Um, and I think that that seems to me like the kind of Kantian view that I'm sort of pushing back against. I think that's too um, demanding. Yeah. I mean, that is one aspect, that's an important aspect of morality, right? The notion that there's a rule and am I gonna abide by it or not? But I think even for uh, adults, a lot of what happens for us morally, it's not about like, I know there's a rule and am I gonna follow it? But it's more about um, relational respect or, or value or love or lack thereof. And our sense that um, I'm doing what's befitting this relationship. And that's a kind of a maybe more virtue and vice language or something, but I think that's what parents are responding to, especially in the cases where, you know, maybe maybe you've told your three-year-old before um, how to deal with food or or what's acceptable in certain ways, right? And so when you find them um, having eaten all the chocolates and and getting it all over the place, a lot of times what a parent says is, "Look, I, like we." We've been, we've talked about this before, like they know they're not supposed to do that. And I think the knowing that it's wrong aspect there, maybe it's not a Kantian kind of rule, but it's a, it's a relational violation. Like my mom asked me not to do this and she has her reasons and, but I did, I didn't care. And that to me, that still seems like a moral relationship. Yeah. Would you say, I don't know the answer to this at all. But it seems like the psychological literature, by and large, sort of assumes a Kantian framework. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, I think um, the developmental psych people who've done this testing have, I think, typically been pretty explicit. Um, I mean, they don't go around saying, like, I support Kant and, um, and not Mill or uh, whatever. But they they cite a lot of Kantian um, philosophers, neo-Kantian philosophers with their, they don't always give a definition of morality because that's not their job. They're psychologists. Like who talks about that? Philosophers. We're not a philosopher. We're scientists. So, you know, actually explaining what your conceptual work means, they don't always think of that as their job, but some of the better people do like Tomasello and, and he and others have been pretty clear, I think about the kind of, Kantian framework that they're, they're presupposing, that might partly be a pragmatic move on their part. Um, like this is a demanding one that if I can prove kids can meet it, then like everybody will agree that, that they meet it. Um, but I do kind of think that it's um, blinded the researchers to some degree, the fact that they're not familiar with alternative options and that they don't always take seriously the moral um, significance of the emotions or inarticulate attitudes that aren't rule following, but nevertheless, I think in everyday relationships, we, we consider them important. Yeah. So thus far, it's been, I have asked you a lot of psychological sort of questions, studies empirically based. In your mind, how does the theological literature or tradition have a, what what kind of resources and, and conclusions does it bring to this this discussion? Does theology, for, by and large, assume that children are responsible? Does it think that they are capable of virtue and vice? Is it conflicting in any way with sort of the empirical studies? Yeah. Um, 
Well, this I think is really interesting. Um, one reason that I think theologically it's important or worthwhile to be interested in children is that children are used as metaphors uh, for the Christian constantly uh, in the Bible and in um, the theological tradition. So before our maker, we are children of the heavenly father, etc. And so one reason to be interested in the psychological research from a theological perspective is just that um, this is a image of the Christian that is pervasive, but maybe hasn't always been explored that much. Um, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah, we're supposed to have childlike faith. I mean, that's nice. Um, but I actually think there's a lot of worth to thinking about the ways in which children are both powerful and deeply dependent creatures. Um, and so this, this brings me back to my so soteriological themes, right? Um, we depend on grace, um, like children depend on, on the grace of their parents. We are like that before God. And I think there's a tendency to have a kind of hubris about the power of our agency as adult human beings that maybe we can complexify or chasten in certain respects as we think about, it's my view that we're more like children than sometimes we want to admit. And so theologically, that's a really interesting point of connection for me. Um, it seems to me that we don't always have as much control over our identities um, as we might like to think that we do. And um, so if we think about the ways in which children have agency, even though they're not fully in control, or sometimes they're quite ignorant, etc., then that can inform how we think about ourselves as well, um, as we realize some of the, the overlaps between what, what they're like and what we're like. So in, in your mind, when it comes to the agency of children, does it make a really big difference in your mind if they have more agency than we thought? Does this have like a lot of cash value for what, whether it could be parenthood or other, I don't know, other scenarios and situations? Yeah. Well, you know, I think about the, like the theory of agency, all the fancy terminology, uh, you know, talk about alternate possibilities and stuff like this. It can seem pretty intimidating sometimes, um, especially if you're not um, deep in the philosophical literature. Um, like what's the difference between significant uh, freedom and, and just regular uh, <laughs> or whatever, you know, some of these terminologies can be complicated. Um, but I think it's, it's really important then to keep in mind that questions about agency are like an, an everyday practical matter for us. You know, we're constantly making these sorts of decisions about praise and blame, um, about each other and about children, etc. And, um, so I think that it's really significant to, to go deeper into these kinds of issues um, because of their, their practical significance um, for just everyday uh, human life. Um, and our attitude towards children, I think, is a, um, a really important question. Like, are we being fair in our assessment of children? And I think that there's certainly sometimes a, a tendency to be 
dismissive of children. I think, I mean, before I became a parent, I didn't, you know, dislike children. Um, but sometimes I think I probably found them um, incomprehensible. And one of the things that being a parent has made me realize is the amount of detailed and careful attention that it takes to understand. I mean, of course, with children, it's funny because, of course, all of us were children at some point. So it's not really fair or accurate to say that they're a different form of life or, or something. But we can we can forget so easily what it is to be a child. Um, and the kind of training that we need to have to learn to attend carefully to, to a kind of part of human life that's so different from, from the, the, the adult expectations and habits, that kind of attention is, I think, really helpful for all kinds of things. Um, and if we get better at it, it might help us understand um, other sorts of ways of being too, um, different ways of being grown up uh, maybe it can give us a kind of a patience for being sensitive to the forms of agency that are maybe all around us, but sometimes we ignore because they don't speak the language that we expect them to speak Yeah, or something yeah. like that. So here's a question I doubt that you've been asked in your research, and you can pun it if you want, but I think it's interesting, and I, I imagine a lot of our listeners would be interested to hear your take on this. So... I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory in, in most Baptist churches. It's, it's not as simple and straightforward of when a child becomes a member. You know, if you, if you're, if you're in a different sort of ecclesial mindset, you're born sort of into the, the community in some sense, and maybe you have a confirmation period, maybe you don't. And there's a set age in Baptist life. It's not so clear cut. It's, it's sort of like whenever they become a, a Christian. And I think most Baptists are fine with them becoming Christian at any age. But then they have like sort of that secondary question of when should they really become a member of the church to be able to make deliberative decisions of, you know, budgets and who should be an elder and who should be a deacon. And oftentimes there's been, a, well, children shouldn't have the responsibilities and duties of membership because they don't have maybe the cognitive capacities for it. Hmm. Um, I've always tended to think that children have a lot more uh, intuition and knowledge than we give them credit for. And just because they can't vocalize, it doesn't mean that they can't be a very strong judge of character. Whereas we can sometimes overlook a lot of things that children wouldn't overlook. I'd be curious yeah. based on your research. Do you think there's any empirical evidence to say that, you know what, maybe there shouldn't be these sort of like warning signs that children shouldn't be allowed to do these various, what we would consider more adult cognitive decisions where maybe they should be given an opportunity to participate in, in the life of the church in these ways. That, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I was, uh, I was, I was raised in a, in a Plymouth brethren congregation that um, was committed to believer baptism and um, actually was very irritated at how long I was forced to wait um, <laughs> before I was baptized. Um, so maybe, Maybe some of that is playing a like a subtle role in the background somewhere here, like defending my youthful frustration. Like, hey, come on, like I, I'm I'm ready. Uh, like I, I know enough. Um, I do think that yeah, you know, I, I think this this gets to a really interesting overall theme that again is not just about children. Um, 
I think that we tend to overestimate the importance and power of a certain conception of rationality and a, a kind of like articulate um, ability to express certain kinds of logic. I mean, one way to talk about this is, is uh, you know, people talk about like emotional intelligence uh, versus more propositional forms of intelligence. Um, there are forms of insight that maybe we sometimes downplay um, because they don't meet a certain conception of what it means to be cognitively gifted. And um, I do think that we, I, I mean, I think I, at least in my own life, have learned, I've ignored those things at my own um, peril. Um, and in those ways, I do think it could really be great to make a place for children. I mean, there are very hard decisions that churches are faced with about finances and stuff like that. And probably, you know, uh, that doesn't play to children's strengths. So maybe, you know, you don't want them to vote on stuff like that. Um, but to give them a role, uh, to find a place, uh, for them in the congregation, I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, to think about how to play to the kind of strengths that they do have. I mean, they tend to be, um, you know, sometimes just brutally honest in ways that can actually be helpful. Adults can't bring themselves to say certain things. <laughs> Kids just say them and everybody's kind of aghast. And then they're like, well, but it's true. <laughs> um, and as you say, sometimes we're really good. We're so good at strategizing about what we want ourselves to think that we can talk ourselves into things. Whereas a lot of times children are more direct and in a funny way, then less likely to get confused. You know, a lot of parents learn to trust their kids' instincts about people. Like, well, my child likes this person and that ends up counting for a lot. And I think it's not just because you're like, my child's the best and uh, whatever they say goes or something like that. It's because you have this sense that children actually do have insight. Yeah. And I've wondered how yeah. much of that insight also comes from adults sort of being less hypocritical in those situations when it's around children to where they almost let their guard down and act like their true mm. selves yeah, and make decisions because they think, oh, the child doesn't understand or won't remember or these different things. I think that's right. And then the kid is like, hey, something is yeah. going on here. Yeah. Well, this is super interesting. So t tell me, I know you've, you've had a huge, long Templeton grant. I, I imagine there's a lot of outputs that are coming coming from this. Are there things yeah. that you can direct uh, our listeners to, to say this book or this paper or these things are going to come out and we should be looking for it in these venues? Yeah, yeah. So I, I ran this grant for five years, just con concluded in um, this past August. It was a $5 million grant. We supported about 17 different research projects. And a few of them connect with some of the stuff I've been saying about children. Um, so my, my friend Elizabeth Cochran, who's at Duquesne, has been working on disability and agency. Um, and another friend, Jennifer Hurt, who's at Yale, has been working on non-human animals and agency. Um, and I think Jennifer just published something in Zygon on um, non-human animals um, that I think is a nice kind of like summary look at the topic. Um, and I've got uh, some stuff in the pipeline, so I can't say for sure where it's going to come out, but I'm, I'm hoping we're trying to put together a focus issue um, for the Journal of Religious Ethics. Uh, and I'm hoping that that one of my pieces on children will come out there. So, but yeah, we'll have to see. Excellent.
Well, so listeners, what, what, I'll, what I'll try to remember to do is whenever these things do come out eventually, remember to retroactively go into the, the notes here and add the stuff for you so you can click the links. But whenever you're listening, you can just Google the stuff. I mean, uh, Jesse's last name is unique enough to where I think you can find anything that's related. Are there any Jesse, other Jesse Cohen Hovens out there? No, not in the, in the age of Google, it turns out to, to be a big advantage to have a weird last name. <laughs> So, yeah. Uh, and lastly, remind me, I know you have a faculty page. Is there another location people can go to follow along with your work or anything? Yeah, I try to um, post because I've, I've received so many emails over the years from people who can't get through firewalls for research, especially in countries outside the U.S. I try to post my research to academia.edu. Um, I don't want to take all the... the, the um, the power away from the publishers so i don't i don't post things immediately um but within a year um i, I try to put all my articles up there so that's a place to look perfect um for excellent so jesse this has been great i really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through all this stuff this is a lot of fun um i guess one last question before, before i forget you're at villanova do you supervise phd students um, i do some yeah i'm a um my home department is an interdisciplinary humanities department um, that is undergraduate focused, um, but I'm also an affiliate member of our theology doctoral program and uh, a member of the ethics um, subfield there. Okay. Perfect. So thanks. This, this has been awesome. Uh, and everybody's been tuning in. Go ahead and check out all the work that he's done, including the, book, the original book on original sin. We'll have to talk about that at some future date. Um, should be a lot of fun. So thanks, everybody listening, tuning in to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.